my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and it's our end of the year blowout, the episode that everybody looks forward to, especially Mr. Will Sloan, right? Yes, the, the episode where we give our top 10 movies of the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like this episode. Wait, what? Oh. No! Okay, here's the thing about these top 10 lists. They're very arbitrary. They never hold up to scrutiny. Oh boy, no they don't, especially a few months afterwards. And... You look at everybody's top 10 lists, and for the most part, it's the same 20 or 30 movies. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about movies on this episode. Some of them I saw nine months ago. Some of them I saw a year and a half ago at at TIFF. I know exactly which one you're talking about, and it's on my list as well. Two movies that I saw at TIFF uh, 2017. So when I approached my top 10 list this year, and just like you, it's not something that excites me. Before doing this podcast, I would never do it, because... Why? Like, nobody cares about our opinions. It's the same movies everybody else saw. Yeah. Like, if I was in different subcultures or, like, you know, South Korea was knocking out of the park in the mid-2000s, then I would have really interesting stuff to talk about. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I mean, maybe it's happening and I'm just not aware of it, but, like, man, not a good year for Chinese cinema. But I'm sure there are some national cinemas somewhere in the world. And we're just not aware of them or um, we haven't done our due diligence yeah or we're lazy and that, we, that's and right yeah doing your do, do due diligence is the um, polite way of we saying don't want to spend a week at the iranian film festival no matter <laughs> <That's right. laughs> even though they're probably very good hey if someone pays us to make this our full-time job we would be there oh at I, the Ira- yeah, I would love to i would love to so again uh call out to any eccentric billionaires so i will do what we do every year which is we go from the top and we each share one but before we get into it what was your impression of 2018 in cinema Did it was fine fine yeah. <laughs> yeah okay as i get older it's harder for me to make you know big grandstanding judgments about the year because i think of 2018 and i think wait what movie came out in 2018 did it come out in 2017 did it come out in 2016 like these years blur together the older i get and i'm about to turn 30 folks i'm very old i get very excited when a new movie comes out and I get to go see it. But as far as like things that like blew my mind when I was sitting in the cinema, I actually, you know, I have to go look and be like, what came out this year? Oh yeah, that did. I mean, I get less excited by fewer new movies, Mm -hmm. I think each year. And I think that just comes from being older. Don't you think? Well, the things that you like have passed and you want things to reflect the things that you like. Also, we are no longer the target demographic. No, we are not. We're not in our early 20s and late teens anymore. Even though you would not know that looking at some of the movies on my list. (laughs) (laughs) So we haven't seen each other's lists. So I'm hoping to shock people listening and I'm hoping to be shocked by Will's list because what's your number 10, Will? My number 10, I think that, you know, if these lists do anything, Mm -hmm. like you've got to have at least a couple of movies on that people haven't heard of that are under the radar. So the one that I've picked as my under the radar choice is an American independent film called Wobble Palace, directed by Eugene Kotlierenko. I'm sorry, what a terrible bastardization. <laughs> who also uh, stars in the movie along with Dasha Nekrasova. Never even heard of this one. Uh, host host of the uh, Red Scare podcast. <laughs> interestingly enough, this. Oh, that doesn't sound like a podcast I'd like. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't. This uh, is. Uh, about a breakup of a young millennial couple taking place over a weekend two millennials who live in los angeles and they they're living together and they decide to split the house they'll each spend you know one day of the weekend at, at the house and they can do whatever they want at the house and really what it means is they just sort of go on tinder trying to find people to hook up with because they're in an open relationship right it's beautifully shot by sean price williams who's the vilmo sigmund of uh, micro budget films this decade love that guy one of the things i like about the movie is like it's a very millennial movie in the la universe that it depicts Mm. this, this world of of struggling to pay the rent in your in your shitty apartment with your mattress on the floor and you're in your mid to late 20s. It's like one of the few movies that I think has convincingly depicted the extreme online-ness of our generation. Like it's done a good job showing like text messaging and Tinder and other social media visually. Yeah, I don't think there's been enough short films of people just staring at their screens <laughs> in rooms. Okay, okay, but this one I think did it better than most. Is it of funny? Them. Yes, it's very funny. Oh, love it. Uh, but did all, you see it at MDFF? Uh, no, it's wow, a movie shocking. that would be. No, I watched it on iTunes. Uh, and also the two main characters 
are very difficult main characters to be around in a way that I found refreshing. And also, I think it's an interesting movie just about the class situation of millennials, because like these these two millennials, you know, they're kind of struggling millennials. But one of the characters is this other millennial who just like runs a startup and he's super rich and he's a Donald Trump supporter. Ooh, I hate him already. Yeah, <laughs> it's full of difficult characters. But if they're funny, I like to watch funny, difficult it's characters. Kind of, it's kind of Annie Hall-ish. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I highly recommend it. Well, I'm going to have to check that one out. I've never even heard about it. Um, as I was saying to Will before we started recording that my list, the previous years I've gone in going, all right, I want to introduce people to movies. I don't know if I'm going to do that this year. Cause I went, I just want movies that I would buy on DVD or Blu-ray. Okay. Now looking at my previous lists, I've gone well, this is crazy. Why did I put this on my list? Like, even in the top five. I'm like, I don't even own these films. Name, like, name names. What are movies you regret putting on your list in the past? Uh, I don't regret it, but Phantom Thread at number one. Oh, I think that's a good choice. It, it is, but it's not a film that I'm going to be rushing to revisit anytime soon. Okay. Um, and I think it's a very safe choice. And I think it's like, uh, okay. And I, I only want movies that make me look smart. Yeah, so. that's, <laughs> yeah that's right. I mean... If you want that, you're going to love my number 10, which I considered very deeply today. And I know that when people hear this movie, they will literally tear the earphones out of their ears and throw it against the wall. And that is number 10 on my list, Aquaman. Okay. The reason for this is twofold. Number one, I had so much fun with it. It's probably the most fun I had in theaters. And when I was watching it, what I was thinking was, why when a movie with this much imagination and this much crazy stuff, most people would dismiss it when it comes from America. But if I saw it coming from Hong Kong, I'd be like, yeah, here we go. Interesting. I mean, the reason that I haven't seen it yet is because the DC comics movies yes, are, are, bad, are bad, are very bad. Yeah. And I should clarify that, like, I don't like the DC comic book movies because <laughs> they're real bad. I like Wonder Woman, but I think that the reason I like Aquaman so much is that it's colorful, it's super imaginative, and most importantly, it's a direct kind of illustration of James Wan's passion. While the other uh, DC movies are definitely extensions of like Zack Snyder's philosophies, this one is James Wan, which is like big and goofy. It's one of the first films in, that I've seen, like new ones in IMAX, where I've gone, wow, this feels like a big movie. Hmm. And secondly, of why I'm putting it on this list, just yesterday I had a conversation with someone who was like, I hate this movie. He's like, I hate it so much. And like, I don't understand why you like it. And I think that for me to just say stuff like, man, I had just had so much fun with this and to just talk about why I had fun with it, that I think that's important. And I think that like, if this is a list of movies that I had the most fun with, Aquaman is definitely up there. Uh, your recommendation carries weight for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm intrigued now. <laughs> and I should say that people that are obsessed with DC movies on social media scare me. <laughs> and uh, I don't think any and, of and them yeah, listen to this and, podcast. Yeah, yeah. And you're a member of the alt-right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, number nine is the Aquaman of Paris, Let the Sun Shine In by Claire Denis. Uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stars uh, Juliette Binoche as a middle-aged divorcee looking for love in glamorous Paris. And Claire Denis is somebody who I'm not an expert in her at all. In fact, certain of the movies, I, I would like to give her more of a shot because she's somebody who has been a bit of a like dog whistle. What, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like a frequency that I haven't quite picked up. Yeah, that's a good way to say dog, it. Is dog whistle right? I don't uh, know. Dog whistle. No, dog wrong. whistle is something different. That means yes. like it's getting your attention you know that frequency, and they're doing it on purpose. You know yeah. that frequency that dogs hear that others don't hear. That's what you're trying to say. Right, yeah, right. But I'm not trying to say that she's saying something racist. No, <laughs> you're looking around and you're like, wow, people really love her and I don't understand why. And I think it's probably it's Definitely just me, but I really liked this movie. No, I felt that way with her new movie that played at TIFF. High Life? Yeah, I didn't like it very much. Okay, I'm, I'm interested to see that one. It mm -hmm. sounds uh, fucked up. Yeah, it, it's not as fucked up as you want it to be. But this was quite a friendly film, uh, and, you know, it was... Uh, full of moments, whether it's about dating or about sex or about just trying to connect in this crazy world that we live in that felt very true. Mm. And it's, you know, not heavily narrative driven. It's sort of structured around her failed non-starting relationships with three men, each of them not ideal partners for her. Mm -hmm. and, but it's just full of these little moments that, that resonate and ring true very much. And, and I think it's very powerful in the way that it shows this very... Um, capable, uh, smart, self-assured woman who, in trying to connect, finds herself in all these situations that are just a little bit 
you know, unpromising or embarrassing the way that, uh, you know, happens for so many people. And of course, it has a great Gerard Depardieu cameo. <laughs> oh, not starring role. I guess he can only um, do a couple of days now before he completely burns out. He's like the shark in Jaws. <laughs> yeah. And they're just talking about him. But when he shows up, whoa. And Juliette Binoche is great. And uh, yeah, the, the sex scenes in particular, I think, are very strong. Did you see um, <laughs> Double Lives? Oh, it had another title when it came Double out. Double Lives? Yeah, the Olivier Assayas film. No, that came I out. didn't. Um, did that actually come out? Was it just I don't think it came out. I think it just played festivals. It's a lot of fun, but it just you talking about that reminded me, especially the um, Juliet uh, Binoche connection. Okay, well, I like him very much, as I ask, you know. So you'll have to check it out. Yeah. Um, my number nine is one that I know Will didn't like that much, which was You Were Never Really Here with Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, right. Oh, it was okay. Yeah, I. it was one of those movies that I actually ended up watching a bunch of times over a number of days with different people. And I think that it just speaks to me because it's playing with a certain genre genre of cinema that I really like and approaching it from a different angle. And I did find that very powerful. And mm, 90 minutes, you can tell that story. Beautiful. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, again, a movie that I saw nine months ago and I can't remember that well. <laughs> it's weird that a lot of my movies came out like in February or March and they've just been on my list since then. Joaquin Phoenix is an interesting presence in that movie, you know? He, yeah. He carries, he has a certain uh, gravitas to him where he doesn't have to do much. And it says a know? lot about like revenge and what it means to enjoy revenge cinema and what you want from it, like as the end point of the, of these stories. Ah, like uh, Old Boy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but it's not Old Boy. It's almost like an anti-Old Boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a film that, didn't it win the... It won some award in an unfinished form at Con, I believe, didn't it? I think it won Best Actor. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. I don't know. I could be wrong. But uh, I found it very powerful, and it's one that's completely slipped from anybody's conversation as we do all of our top ten lists, so I'm putting it right back in there. Well, uh, number eight, and we're sticking in the art house for this next one. It is, in fact, Zama by Lucretia Martel, mm-hmm. a movie that I don't think you were that crazy about. It was fine. It was, it was fine. exactly what I thought it was going to be. Well, I got to say... I saw it at the TIFF Lightbox, and uh, I think it benefits from seeing it in a theater because it it becomes a very sort of weird and overwhelming kind of sensual experience, if that makes sense. Well, it does. It's the story of a Spanish officer, or I don't think he's originally Spanish, but he's serving the Spanish Empire in 18th century colonial Paraguay, who's waiting transfer to another part of the empire and while he's there he slowly begins to realize that transfer is never going to come and he's sort of stuck in this purgatorial state i mean the film says right from the beginning (laughs) is like let me tell you about this fish that just swims upstream the entire time fighting the current and never getting anywhere wink wink you get it you get it and everything i got it uh two hours (laughs) (laughs) everything's just a little off around here his relationships not only with the people in his immediate sphere but also with the colonial subjects who are around them who are always in the background you know fanning people yeah uh not, not compelling to you. No. Uh, I, like, didn't, I, didn't you like it as as the movie got more and more surreal? And didn't you find it a little bit funny? You know? Yeah, I, I did find it very funny. Yeah. The llama that uh, has been showing up everywhere in gifts. I just didn't feel very, like, compelled by it. And I think it probably has something to do with, I watched it at home, on my couch, uh, on the TV. And if I had been trapped in a theater with people laughing along with the movie, I think that maybe it would have added a different dimension to it. And that you're going along, wondering where things are going, as opposed to me watching this movie and realizing, like, oh, I understand where things are going and the only place that it can end. Sure. And while it it does end in a pretty humorous way as well, but it's definitely, like, a theatrical experience that I had to have, which I did not. Well, what's your number eight? Uh, Probably the... uh, It is eight, right? We're at eight. Yeah, we're at eight. It's the Zama of Netflix. It's The Night Comes for Us. I don't even know it. Oh, the martial arts film that came out that was directed by the guys who did Headshot. Okay. Um, This is a movie that if you want to pitch it to someone as a martial arts film it's probably the most gory martial arts film i've seen since the story of ricky um i'm in yeah i'm shocked i thought i had mentioned this to you oh maybe you did and it's from uh the director timo uh janto i know i'm saying that incorrectly and it's about a guy who while doing something very bad decides to go 
against his uh, employers. So a bunch of assassins come after him and the film gets to play out these amazing, almost episodic set pieces that all play like their own little heroic bloodshed movies with like different um, characters. So you got like a fight in a meatpacking plant. So of course, a lot of blades are being used in that. Guts spill out, like bones are broken and smashed into other people. And it's just very committed as like an action picture and it's a film that I know that the director has been trying to get off the ground for almost a decade now they keep they kept announcing like oh we're gonna make it oh we're gonna make it and for it to be kind of dumped on Netflix is such a bummer because while a lot of people talked about it like you didn't even know that it had come out yeah I well I would love to see it now yeah I'm sorry an, I didn't hear about it's it it's an Indonesian film and it's so much fun um, it was kind of a toss up between this and a Filipino film called By Bus that I saw but I actually Bang Bus nope not Bang Bus okay. it's called By Bus even though, yes, that is a terrible title because that's all anybody can think of. And by that, I mean people who know Will Sloan who explained to them what Bang Bus was. Uh, yeah, it's a Filipino film that I rewatched it with some friends and the first hour is really brutal. Like, nothing really happened. So, unfortunately, the memory of the amazing experience I had in Times Square watching that film kind of just faded away. Mm, yeah. Even though it's a really strong film and I would recommend people to check it out. But check out The Night Comes for Us first. What's your number seven, Will? Well, number seven is where the list gets even more irredeemably film Twitter-ish. <sighs> yeah. Well, one of us has to do it. Yeah, one of us we has to We discussed it. We both, you know, on Will's list, Aquaman was number five. And we're like, listen, we can't do this. So we have to, you know, split it between us. Well, so uh, seven, I, I'd like to pay tribute to a great auteur, Mr. Clint Eastwood, <laughs> with, with a tie. <laughs> A tie, I tell Fuck. you. Fuck. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 1517 to Paris and The Mule. You're shaking your head. I'm shaking my head. You know, what I find so moving about Clint Eastwood at this point in his career is the man is, what, 88 years old. And, you know, as recently as American Sniper and Sully, he was doing pretty slick entertainments with big action set pieces, very professional looking movies. And now he just wants to capture beauty. He doesn't care what rules that he conforms so, to. So, himself sleeping with <laughs> beautiful naked women? Yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, he looks at these three real heroes, these three unremarkable people, and in, he finds beauty in their sheer affectlessness. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, when I saw the fifteen seventeen to Paris, like I was, I was taken aback by it. It's like this is, this is barely a professional film, and it's being so. That a, is what has value in your eyes: the fact that a man like Clint Eastwood, who's worked in the Hollywood system, is not only still making movies at this age, but he's making barely competent he's movies. He's making these movies. Yes. And, you know, the 1517 to Paris, like, he cast these three guys, like, for a reason. He's trying to make a point that, like, these guys really are unremarkable. You know, some, ha some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. There was nothing great about these guys until that You don't moment. think it was Clint Eastwood went, like, oh, I don't want to have to go through a casting process. Let's just these guys. <laughs> okay, okay. But, no, he just came off a movie with Tom Hanks. Yeah, okay? he did, yeah. He can get big people. But then... He also, like, kind of loves these guys, too. Mm -hmm. He loves how unremarkable... He loves following them around at a club or ordering gelato or, you know, just vacationing, backpacking around Europe. And then when the action scene comes, it's really well done. And it's, and it's like, really funny, and it feels good. <laughs> 1517 <laughs> to Paris. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just a great, a great experience. Uh, I didn't then, watch it, so... Oh, come on. I know, I haven't seen it. Okay, well, The Mule, which you have seen... I did. And which I think Went you to go only, see at the theater all by myself. <laughs> I think you were only moderate on it. You know, I just love spending two hours with Clint. But I also Clint love... Clint Eastwood is such a bad person, though. And because that movie is all about how awesome he is, even well, though... he's bad to his family. He's bad to his family, but he still wins their hearts at the end. Yeah. And, and and you also resent, though, the kind of extra textual quality that he brings. The fact that we're supposed to read it, not just as the character, but you're supposed to read this as Clint Eastwood. Yes, yeah. you you are. Like, yeah. I don't think there's... Even though that there's a running gag that people sa thinks that he sounds like Jimmy Stewart, which I'm like, wait, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But, um, like, the trailers had me looking forward to something that the movie didn't deliver. And I, I, I know thriller. that's not even a thriller, but the story of like a bad man doing a bad thing for the people that he loves. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was a story I was going into. And that's not why I was kind of lukewarm on the movie. I was lukewarm on the movie because the movie's about how awesome Clint Eastwood is. Well, he misses his daughter's wedding. <laughs> he does. But man, everybody else loves him, doesn't he? 
Sure, everyone else loves him. Who? It's, it's like Clint Eastwood himself. He's done terrible things to the people around him. But everybody everyone loves, loves him. There's two scenes where he sleeps with two women at the same time. So he has two threesomes. Yeah, two threesomes. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. And that role, didn't you love the scene where he was partying at the drug cartels, uh, you know, the mansion? Oh, oh, oh boy. And, <laughs> and, and he, and he's he's like know, grabbing the woman's butt. He's looking at butts. He's feeling butts. Um, he's just having to get, I mean, it's a movie loaded with exquisite moments of him eating ice cream sandwiches. Or just, just eating driving. a pulled pork sandwich. Oh, wonderful. singing so charmingly that his handler starts singing along with him as well. You know, and this is another thing I love about the movie like it's just a very a very good feeling movie mm-hmm. everyone is nice in this movie and is and is trying to be a good person except uh the you know the edifice of the drug enforcement agency which is bad and inefficient because mm-hmm. clint doesn't like pencil pushing bureaucrats <laughs> um, and you know maybe one or two of the drug lords but what does he what does it say about the government i guess it's because like the government is not helping like veterans and stuff like that so it's up to the individual using the systems of capitalism to get in there and to fund these well, associations w- well i mean uh, capitalism has destroyed Clint Eastwood, yes. and then the only way he can rebuild his life is through this uh, this this cartel. Um, so, what is good? Capitalism, or is it the illegal going beyond? What, what's bad are these these pencil pushing bureaucrats yeah, who are wasting a ton of money because they just, just to need arrest the... Clint Eastwood. Yeah, they who's need useless. They need it to be on the books. They even say that themselves. Yeah. They're like, we need a yeah. high profile bust. So they're the bad guys, and also a couple of the drug lords who kill people. Yes, but some of the other drug it's people funny are. That you are never fun. see any drug users in this movie. Yeah, Clint does that would... need to be spelled out? No, for it, us? it doesn't. No, yeah. I mean, if anything, I hope in my old age I can also start running drugs because it seems like a fun activity one more thing about this movie before Mm. we move on were you compelled by his vision of america i mean uh the legion halls and the shitty diners and the you know dilapidated front yards of this movie it feels very true to me it feels it feels it's an america that feels very real and that i don't often see in movies yeah and that clint eastwood himself probably would doesn't visit very often uh, who knows? Maybe yeah, he, I, I mean, I he's, he's in touch with it, if, even if he doesn't visit it. It does feel real, but at the same time, we were discussing this uh, a little bit earlier, that there's some like weird jokes in the movie that seem to be like... Okay, the race stuff. The race stuff. But there's a whole bunch of stuff. Like, it's a joke, but at the same time, it's like the audience... I don't know, man. It just rubbed me the wrong way. Sure, I get it. But I also think Clint Eastwood is smarter and more and more engaged with race in this movie than ostensibly liberal filmmakers like the Coen brothers are. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Like he's, he's very conscious of it. Yes. Um, But then he may be conscious of it, but the direction he's pushing it in is one that I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. Sure. Anyway, so you agree that it's a masterpiece. Masterpiece. The mule is so good. And it's definitely his, um, it's his, uh, the the man who shot Liberty Valley. No, no, no. What am I thinking of? The, uh, Jerry Lewis. It's Max Rose. Max Rose. (laughs) Because Clint Eastwood has never looked more old on screen in this movie. And that's something that really struck me throughout the entire thing. And I was really excited when it started playing because I'm like, wow, he feels like an old, real person that just kicks all kinds of ass. I'm really shocked that like there's the scene where um, he's held up at gunpoint and they're going to kill him. And then you don't see what happens. And later on, you see him driving all bloody and stuff like that. Yeah. Like that Clint Eastwood didn't just shoot a scene where he was awesome and he killed them all and he used martial arts. He's not cool anymore. Isn't what? that interesting? Like, I mean, he's cool because he's Clint Eastwood, but but the movie portrays is... him as a good, not cool, but like, but, but he's he's pathetic. Like he like is. physically and every, he looks everything. like every's everybody's grandpa. Yeah, like thin pants too high. And that took me aback. Yes, I'm not used to seeing Clint. But Eastwood he can still like fuck. He can still fuck. <laughs> yeah. And he probably still does fuck in real life. Oh, so all the time. Good on him, you know. Uh, so my number rest in peace, Sandra Locke. Eight. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'm glad you can bring Sandra Locke up at the end of this. Which um, at the end, uh, Clint Eastwood has uh, a moment of reconciliation where someone tells him, "I'm just glad you're here." As they're dying, I do not think that happened between him and Sandra Locke. Right. <laughs> For the record. Well, we're not reviewing him as a man. No, nope, we're reviewing is, the movie. Even though he is almost certainly a wonderful man as well. All right. What's your number seven? Uh, uh, blind spotting from 2018. Did you see that one? Uh, no, I didn't. I saw Train Spotting too, though. <laughs> <laughs> blind spotting, which is a film by uh, 
Carlos Lopez Estrada, who's mostly a music video director and was written by um, Rafael Casal and David Diggs, and they both star in the movie. It's kind of like a couple days in the life of um, two friends from Oakland, one of them who is on probation. He had three days left. He witnesses a shooting at the beginning of the movie, but that's not really like a suspense mechanism. It's just what happens throughout these last days of his probation and what it means to be like gentrified and to identify of where you come from and race and all that other fun stuff. And it's just a great movie that's like light, but deals with like really heavy subject matter in a way that is fun to watch. And I've watched it multiple times over the year with a bunch of people. And it's one of those films that everybody's like, oh yeah, that's right, that came out. I didn't I didn't get to see it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the two stars of the movie, Davey Diggs, who really blew up when he starred in the first run of Hamilton, and uh, Raphael Casal, who is a poet, who plays his best friend in the movie, and is not an actor, and it's because they were both friends in real life since they were kids. So that kind of chemistry is on screen throughout mm-hmm. and about like their relationship at like a heightened level. Mm, sounds good. Yep. It's a movie that a lot of people have said, wow, I watched it on a plane and it was amazing. <laughs> so I would definitely recommend to see Blind Spotting. What's your next one, Will? Well, number six, I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching on a plane because uh, you should watch it on a big screen. I think we have the same movie at number six. Mission Impossible Fallout. Fallout. Yeah. yeah. Uh, good great film. Mind. The art and the uh, working class finally come together. <laughs> the snobs and the slobs. The slobs yep. I mean, what is not to like about this movie? Uh, if you hate Tom Cruise as a person. I mean, then you'll love watching him fall and hurt himself. <laughs> and break and, his foot on screen. Yeah. You know, I, 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 we don't really have to spend too much time talking about what's great about it, but I, I, although we could. Yeah, we could. Well, easily. I mean, what, what I would like to... These movies have mirrored Tom Cruise's career. Yeah, we talked about that yeah. in the uh, Tom Cruise episode. Yeah, like... like he, you know, in the early ones, he used to he used to fuck and yeah. he used to be really cool and charismatic. And now he's just he's getting his Jackie Chan era as he, he gets older. He's he he's no time for romance anymore. You know, mm-hmm. he's busy saving the world. What must Tom Cruise do on talk shows now? He can't talk about anything. Does he even go on talk shows anymore? I think he does. I mean, I, he just talks about the stunts that he does and movies. Movies are his life. Tom Cruise is an empty shell, and this is all that he has. Yeah, and you know, it's amazing that the Mission Impossible movies have been able to make it work because like as i think i might have said on our episode about him like they rely so much on tom cruise as a star text Mm -hmm. and as a screen presence and it's as if these recent ones are saying to you okay you don't like tom cruise you think he's crazy we're going to make that work for you. Well, I think that Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote and directed this film, is very smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you ever hear him talk, he considers film a very organic medium and that he's very open. There is, I think there's an, like eight hours of podcast that he did with the Empire Film Network mm-hmm. of him just talking about what the process of the film was. The fact that they were shooting this film, I don't know how this happens. And only half the script was written. Mm. So they were like making it up as it was going along and test screening and what works and what doesn't. I mean, that makes sense to me because I could not pass a test on what the plot is. No, I remember no six idea. scenes probably. That just you know? pop and are like, wow, like these that, are crazy. Like that bathroom fight scene. Oh, so good. Incredible. And you know, the, the last scene when he's like flying the helicopter. And dangling. But even Amazing. like, like that scene is also intercut with two other things going oh, on yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And it just flows so perfectly. Ah, that movie's so much fun. You know that festival, the True False Film Festival, mm-hmm. where it's like documentary fiction hybrid stuff? They should show the Mission Impossible movies. They, they could. Yeah, they should. Hosted by us. Yes. <laughs> My, I guess I'll take the number five yeah, then. Yeah, go for it. Which is Paddington 2. Love okay. that bear. Did you see it? You know, I haven't seen it, and I'll tell you why I haven't seen it. This is totally not fair. Because Twitter loves it so much? Yeah, because yeah. because I saw so many people on Twitter saying stuff like, you know, in the time of Donald Trump, we really mm. need the kindness of Paddington. <laughs> and I thought, you're, you're grown adults. Yeah, but what difference does it make if like, this I movie know. makes them feel good? You know what? I'm sure it's a lovely movie, too. Oh, I love it. See it. Tears yeah. at the end. Tears. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it again uh, with Emily on New Year's Eve and just woo, at the end she's like are you crying I'm like the bear gets to bring his bear ant oh it's so beautiful well he looks like a very cute bear yeah he's a very cute bear and Hugh Grant is in it yeah who plays a um, very uh, <laughs> arrogant actor who says he wants to put on a one man show because the other actors dilute his performance and lives in a house that just has photos of young Hugh Grant everywhere <laughs> and isn't Paddington like an immigrant well that's how it's treated Yes, that he's an immigrant and like somebody on the street wants him to like get out of his country. He's like, I never trusted that bear and stuff like that. And like, it's a movie that's like so imaginative and so much fun. And like, it's not just cute and like optimistic. It's just 
very carefully put together in a way that like unfortunately a lot of kids films aren't because a lot of people making kids films will go well who cares it's a kids movie right the people behind this did not think that way and i think that makes a big difference when it comes to these kind of movies justin my pledge to you and to the listeners is that soon i will see paddington too hey you have a significant other now that you could watch this movie with when she's like well i want to watch a movie well sure and you know, I think in normal political times, I would have seen it. Um, but but now but you got to stay angry. Well, my brain has just been fried and destroyed <laughs> by by Twitter. Um, uh, Twitter's the worst. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, so my number five is Burning by Lee Chang Dong. I, I haven't seen Burning. Have you seen it? No. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't have much to add to what everybody else has said. Yeah, about. it was on Obama's top it, 15 as well. Yeah. And, and I think it's on most <laughs> top yeah, yeah, 10 yeah. lists. And it's... God, this is the part of the... Sh- Maybe I, I avoided it because I'm like, I don't want it on my top 10 list. Like, you know what? I'm going to watch Burning tonight. This is the part when I don't like doing this episode every yeah. year because I just feel like... What like am I going to say? Regurgitating what everybody else has said. But, you know, shortly, it's a very enveloping story. Mm-hmm. It's very suspenseful. And it's, you know, one of the smartest movies this year about class. Uh, and, yeah, the the... Yeah, class. Why well, I'm not getting into it further. You <laughs> yeah. all know. Many of you have probably seen it. And it's beautifully yeah, shot. Yeah, but they want this movie on the list so they can go, mm-hmm, I put that on my list as well. Well, <laughs> there you know, go. I'm sure it's on their list too. Number four, Bodied for me. Okay, uh, we have, I'm gonna the, save we have it. the same number four. <laughs> we do? Bodied? Yes, wow. That, that is my number four as well. So let's talk about Bodied. Uh, what else do we have to say? We did a whole episode on it oh, on but Patreon. That, but that was a while ago, yeah. so I think we can get into it again. What's it about? Uh, it's about a young, white university student who's writing a thesis on the use of the N-word in rap music who gets involved in the battle rap scene, and it comes to light that he's a very good battle rapper. And then the film starts tackling the idea of like but what does that mean as like a white kid doing this and the the battle rap like in these battle rap battles everybody is picking you know whatever is the most obvious stereotype mm-hmm. about the race or gender of the other person that they're they're battling and using that so like when he's uh you know making fun of black people mm-hmm. or whatever what does that mean uh you know it does he have great artistry in in battle rap? And what is the line between wh- where do ethics come into play? Like one opponent goes, well, your jokes were about me being Korean. Like all the racist stuff you said, that's pretty good. Most people just think I'm Chinese. And meanwhile, he has a girlfriend who is, um, I don't want to say an SJW, <laughs> but, but, but I think Joseph Kahn would say that, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> I-, I love Joseph Kahn as a filmmaker. Speaking of the hell that is Twitter. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and you know, I kind of wish that body had come out like as right, a big movie, as a big movie, but right after TIFF 2017, instead yes. of staying on the shelf here, because I feel like it would have, it would have popped more mm-hmm. had it come out right at that time. Because I think by the time it actually did come out in theaters, a, a lot of people, including probably me and you, were a little bit tired of the campus PC debate, you know? No, I don't follow that stuff, so I was good. <laughs> well, but, but it's just like, weren't you always tired of hearing about that stuff? Uh, anytime anyone goes like, uh, you know, these PC people who can't, I just disconnect okay, me, automatically. I, no, me too. Yeah, but yeah, that yeah. is one of the subjects of this movie. Yes, right? it is. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and if, it does it in a very smart way. And the thing is, if you watch like the first 30 minutes... That is not the movie that the film ends like. Yeah. So I could see, especially that it's on YouTube, right? So people may just watch for 30 minutes and be like, ooh, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. Like, we heard as the months went by that, like, film festivals or film festivals turn this film down because they're like, well, it's very offensive and we don't want to, like, you know, ruffle any feathers. Wow. But it's not, though. It's, it's not. It's always on the right. Yeah. It, it always And the way that the it line. ends, if you explained it to somebody and you just explained the ending, you went, oh, oh, I don't like that. But, like, that's what the movie's about. And, like, the movie's aware of that. And, and that's a discussion that it's having. And it's also just, like, a really electrifying movie. It yes. Was, it was such a great experience watching it at Midnight Madness in 2017. Uh, so good. Um, yeah. So my number three is, speaking of South Korean films, 1987, When the Day Comes. Now, this is a film that I should have watched earlier in the year when it came out. It's actually available on Amazon Prime if you're in the U.S. right now, I believe. And it came to my attention because, I mean, unfortunately, I used to be so, like, keyed in of what was coming out in South Korea. Like, thanks to websites like twitchfilm.net and stuff like that. And it's weird that, like, there's more, like, people talking about movies now than ever. But that avenue has completely disappeared for, for me because... You know, websites aren't being paid to cover this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, like, they're not doing it anymore. So, like, South Korean or Indian or 
even Chinese movies come out and we're like, whoa, I didn't even know this movie was coming out because we're so lost in it. But this movie is from the director of uh, Save the Green Planet who a uh, film that came out in 2003 and it's a film that I love 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 and the director unfortunately he just kind of disappeared for a long time he released a film called A Monster Boy in 2013 which was okay but 1987 when the day comes is the story of a big political event that happened in uh, South Korea going from kind of like a I'm going to use get all the political terminology wrong but like more of a totalitarian state to more of a democratic one and like what led to those changes and it's over like pretty compressed period of time and the director described it best as he said it's a relay race so you'll follow one character for a while and then it'll kind of hand off to the next character then you follow them up until an event that is very famous in south korea that i had never heard of before and it's just like that perfect south korean like this is a movie that has everything and it's doing it so perfectly. Like it can be a political procedure. It can be kind of, it can be suddenly a chase scene out of nowhere. It can be a romantic comedy. And then it can be like heavy, heavy melodrama as it gets to the end. I'm, I, I think you put it well, that is a testament to the uh, more diluted. <laughs> yeah. Diluted nature of how Asian movie news is reported or disseminated it's now, just but gone. I, I just had no idea that the director of save the green planet had a new movie yeah and yeah. that's like crazy to me like yeah. i guess maybe was i more regimented on the websites that i went to back in the day mm-hmm. or like it's things change like i know i've i, I said twitchfilm.net that's not what it's called anymore it's called screen anarchy mm-hmm. and like when they switch to a thing where you have to click through slides through every mm-hmm. articles i just kind of stop reading mm-hmm. it because i'm like this is crazy like i can't I can't absorb the information this way. Yeah. And I guess maybe that's just what it is, is as technology advances and the way that we get information is different, we're getting less of it in a less specific way, mm. I guess, or less value. Ah, it's terrible. I wish I knew all these movies coming out and I used to. Yeah. So frustrating. So number three for me is The Favorite by the divisive Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, and I, yeah, I, I really loved this movie. I was really taken aback by how much I liked it. I thought you were like a Yorgos kind of like, meh. I, I was a, a skeptic, but mm-hmm. this movie definitely brought me on his side. I like the way that he depicts the royal court as just an absolutely amoral cesspool. Yeah. And like he creates this sort of dichotomy between, you know, you've got the brothel mm-hmm. and you've got the the royal court and the Emma Stone character can end up in one of these places. These are the two options for her. And and morally, what is the difference between between them? Right? I like, like this movie, but I wanted to love it and I didn't love it. And I couldn't understand why because I'm sitting there watching it and I'm like, oh, I like all these things. I like the way that he's telling this story, the way that he decided to film it all and kind of like panning tracking shots with big wide angle lenses. I like that the too. The opulence yeah. of it all. Well, I mean, I liked his weird uh, fisheye lenses and stuff because it, it just adds to the sense of how kind of crazy and alienating mm-hmm. this royal palace I love the is. performances from like um, Olivia Coleman mm-hmm. and Emma Stone. I think it's a very, I also found it very moving, you know, the chess game that the three central characters play with each other and, you know, how sex in this world is you know, this very valuable commodity. It's it's a weapon. Mm. It's a bartering chip. Um, it's also something that a very lonely person can have, like, to just fill the aching void <laughs> in her in her soul. Like, a- like, I don't think the Olivia Coleman character, the queen, is necessarily gay. But, like, sex is just, w- with these two women, is just something that, like, is is a nice feeling mm. to interrupt the agony of the rest of her life, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, if people haven't checked it out, I would definitely say watch it. Cause it and it's a very funny movie as yeah. well. I like the jaundiced eye with which it regarded these systems of power. Like, there's a war going on in this mm-hmm. movie. And we, you know, the war is something that occasionally comes into the room and they say, your majesty, this is what we want to do in the war. Should we do this? And then it goes off. And it's like somewhere, somewhere people are dying. dying but it doesn't matter. Doesn't because, matter. yeah, it's all being affected by these three interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so number two, and I know it's going to be your number one, Will. So uh, it's the other side of the wind. I know what your number one is now. <laughs> yeah, you <Okay>. do. <laughs> um, so let's talk about you know what? Let's talk about what my number one is, and then we'll talk about the other side of the wind because we can both talk about okay, it. Wait, I've got a number two as well. Oh, do you? Do your number two? Yeah, uh, it's First Reformed by Paul. Oh Schrader. yeah, I, did you forget about it? No, I, I remembered it, but I was like, I love First Reformed so much when I saw it, but I haven't watched it since then. Yeah, okay, I haven't either, and I loved it when I saw it, and like I have this sense, I, I should have seen it again before doing this podcast, mm-hmm. but 
it increases it does feel kind of like the movie of the year in a way like Ethan Hawke is this priest at this fake church you know this Mm -hmm. tourist trap church that's like the oldest church in wherever it is and he learns from this parishioner who has killed himself about the impending climate apocalypse yes and he's saying why can't we use our pulpit to talk about this like this is god's earth we need to do something about this and cedric the entertainer is there to tell him look you don't understand this is a fake church (laughs) like (laughs) like it it doesn't matter that's not what you're here for and i I don't know is there any better metaphor for america and it's such a funny film too (laughs) oh Uh, yeah yeah. i mean don't look at what paul schrader's saying on social media (laughs) just enjoy the film for what it is sometimes he's funny on social media (laughs) yeah but he's an old man he's like the old joseph (laughs) Kahn. yeah that's right (laughs) the old man just yeah joseph Kahn, the paul schrader of our generation okay so now let's talk about your number one which i saw yesterday yeah spider-man into the spider-verse now i started this list by saying that this is a list of stuff that I like the most. Now, I saw Aquaman and Mary Poppins Returns and Spider-Man yesterday was Emily. She liked Aquaman the most. She's like, I had the most fun with that one. And I can completely understand that. Spider-Man for me is weird because it's something that I became aware of very young and it meant a lot to me. So to see a movie like this come out that just plays to all of my likes, whether it be like animation, which I love, Spider-Man, and the idea that like the story is all about like, you know, anyone can be Spider-Man. It doesn't matter who you are or what your background is. That's fun to me. And especially when it involves multiple realities, variations on a theme, which is my favorite kind of stuff. And Nicolas Cage doing his Bogart impersonation from the end of Dog... Doggy um, Dog. Doggy Dog, the false trader film. Which somehow missed my list last year. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that I just find very powerful. And that the fact that a movie like this exists kind of blows my mind. And it's funny because when I left with Emily, she's like, do you have any of those Spider-Man noir comics? And Mm. I'm like, no, that was just a miniseries that came out a few years ago. But like the fact that conversations like that are happening with people, especially when you talk about superheroes, it's white guys. Like that's who superheroes are, are right? And that's one of the reasons where you're like, ugh, like I don't want to watch these. And finally you can have a movie about a bunch of people. That's fun to me. Uh, I think it's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the story works. Yeah. I think it's brilliantly animated. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like really brilliantly animated. Like, well, I think the, revolution, like no animated yeah. film, especially on. I've this never seen level. anything that looked like quite like this. Nah. Um, and you know, the the New York in the movie is uh, incredibly, <laughs> like, incredibly well done. And that final, I mean, it gave me a headache watching the final yeah. action set piece. Uh, why is it not on my list? Because I knew it'd be on your list. Yeah, so you knew it was going to be on my we, list. We were going to talk about it. Yeah, so. and it's something that like I feel will be rediscovered in mm. a way because. It made money at the box office, but it wasn't like a hit like Sony yeah. expected. It was no Venom, if yeah. you will. I mean, it's, it's I think, probably making similar Speed money Racer. to what, like, the Lego Batman movie made. Yeah. Which is like, I don't know, maybe there's something, maybe audiences, I mean, okay, obviously it's made a significant amount of money, but there's... Aquaman made so much more money than but it, like, which is crazy. This movie and the Lego Batman movie are very sort of jokey and self-referential, mm. and they seem to be be taken as you know fans only propositions do you think that's what it is like i guess so i mean i don't know how else to explain it i can can only like marvel that a movie like this marvel pun uh came out to theaters and it involves multiple spider-man like the same spider-man dies at the beginning and then a new one replaces him and then most audiences are fine with it Mm. which just goes to show that like studio execs who are so terrified of anything challenging and this is not a challenging movie but it is a lot to wrap your head around when you're watching it i mean it's a very dense experience (laughs) there's a lot going on but i do think it is a very savvy piece of like brand management i'm not saying that in Mm -hmm. a in a bad or yeah. an insulting way but what the movie is saying is spider-man the story of spider-man the the image of spider-man its iconography is so strong and so powerful and so iconic that it can go into all these different directions and it's still fundamentally spider-man and it will work well what's you know? crazy about that idea is that spider-man is such a weird superhero he's a spider-based superhero there's nothing attractive to that 
you know, instinctively. Someone like mm-hmm. Superman or Batman, like they're cool things, right? Mm-hmm. A spider is not necessarily cool. You don't but, think spiders are cool? Uh, spiders, yeah, they're they're fine. Yeah. But like, as far as like someone who like he shoots webs out of his hands, like that's such a specific thing. Yeah. And the idea that it can kind of go around like this. And if you look at a more optimistic way, is the idea of like you know, a kid in the theater, it doesn't have to be some white guy up on screen that they see sure. doing all this stuff. And I think that's important too. As a white guy, I get to see myself up there all the time. Sure. That it matters. So my number one is actually a bit of a cheat because yes, it's the other side of the winds, but I'm tying it with Bill Gunn's personal problems. Nah, you can't do that. Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah I can. It's but, You can do whatever you want. You're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. it gives a shit. I mean, my number one, uh, Twin Peaks, The Return. <laughs> well, yeah. Personal problems. It's on plenty of top 10 lists this oh, year. Oh, is it? I don't know if you've seen it. I think it was like... No, number 15 yeah, right. or it never really came comment. out so uh, and also it never came out in this form yes that's true um, there was an edited kind of theatrical version of it and i think these two movies work well together because in addition to being two like really electrifying experiences they're like full course meals mm-hmm. um and also there are movies where this auteur seeds a lot of control they're very kind of collaborative and participatory experiences and i mean also participatory for the audience like they seem to be the, the film's Aesthetically, it's almost like they're rebuilding cinema from the ground up or trying to. And I can imagine the viewer watching them many times and choosing to like latch on to different characters or follow different threads. Or, you know, I can imagine the viewer's um, relationship with the stories and the characters just just changing. Mm -hmm. And and Have you watched The Other Side of the Wind since you watched it with me? No, I'm waiting for it. It's it's never going to happen. It might happen that I might see it in a theater soon. Yeah. It might happen. Uh, but yeah, they feel like choose-your-own-adventure movies, you mm. know, um, while also, like, having just a lot to say. Mm. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm babbling because, like, there's so much in these movies. We talked about The Other Side of the Wind at length in a Patreon mm. episode, so you should yeah. check that out if you want us to hear us go at length about it. And it's we my talked, number two, of and, course. And we talked about personal problems in the Bill Gunn episode. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I almost made on my list was Unsane. I love that movie. Oh, that I really Steven like Yeah, I considered it, too. Yeah. And and um, it just kind of got squeezed out. Uh, Maybe if I had seen it uh, closer two weeks to here, ago, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. But that's one that uh, has left the conversation. And Steven Soderbergh has said that pretty much all his movies are going to go to Netflix now because why? Why not? <laughs> They'll yeah. give him the money to do it. All right, so I guess that's our top ten list. And yeah, you won't have to do this for another year, will? Yeah, Unless I mean, we all die before. Then. I like making the list. It's just having to talk about these movies that I saw nine months ago. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. I don't know. And then for me to ask, have you seen it since then? And you're like, no, no. <laughs> no, and I'll probably never see it again. <laughs> um, Although I think my number ones I will see again sometime. Yeah, I think Personal Problems is one that I heard from a guy that works at Kino said that it hasn't even been selling that well. That's so too bad. I, I mean, it's that problem, which is a movie that nobody knows about from a filmmaker that nobody knows about. So yeah. the only way that it can sell is by someone saying that you have to see this. So mm-hmm. if you can get people to watch Personal Problems from this recommendation, um, good on us. And and Into the Spider-Verse, if, if you've heard of it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I gotta say about Into the Spider-Verse, I mean, I said this back when I talked about Aquaman, but it's really important to me when people are passionate about what they're making, especially if it's a brand. And you can feel, especially Phil Lord and Chris Miller and the three directors, like they're passionate about this stuff. And it actually means something to them beyond like give me that cash well you know i do like uh lord and miller and i'm sad that they were fired from the han solo movie Ugh, um, I, the han solo movie would have been great and i think you know a complaint that i guess i've had about some of the marvel movies is that they're sort of bland and have this house style that's imposed yep. on them and i mean if if superhero movies are to be the dominant form of of blockbuster cinema then this is i guess what i want to see like <sighs> kind of distinctive idiosyncratic uh, visions yeah, of this kind of yeah. stuff yeah yeah um, hopefully Lord and Miller get hired to, I don't know, make Venom 2. Can you imagine their Venom movie? Probably been great. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, no, and, don't and give us our be, shitty properties. And then it'll be taken away from them and, uh, halfway you know, through. Or, yeah. or, or it'll just be recut into a, a sliver like the predator was. From <laughs> oh, Shane no. Black. Yeah. Like they hire Shane Black and he gives them a Shane Black movie and they're like, well, this is not what we wanted. And it's like, what the what? Who did you think you hired? Yeah, and so then they cut it down to something that's neither fish nor fowl. <laughs> yeah, and makes no money and nobody likes. And they're like, well, Chain Black's fault, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so on our Patreon this week, uh, we talked about Cinephilia. Specifically, a movie called Cinemaniacs. Or Cinemaniac. Cinemania. Oh, Cinemania. That's right, called. Cinemania. Okay. And uh, it's a movie that Will knew that I had never heard about. What is it about, Will? It's about, uh, I think, a half dozen absolute cinephiles who live in the New York area who spend all day, every day going to see movies. 
if you live in a city that has a thriving rep culture, you will see some some of these types of people mm-hmm. in your city. And um, so we kind of deconstruct who these people are, what it means to be a person like this. Is this in our future? Real fun and very sad stuff. But uh, I'm probably going to drop. I made a, a few lists of things that I really like this year, like film books, et cetera, et cetera. Favorite Blu-ray. So I'll mention that as well. <laughs> you know, tying it into that obsession theme of the podcast. You can listen to that uh, if you become a Patreon subscriber. It's $5 a month and you get four episodes, new ones, and you get our whole back catalog. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. Do we have any letters this week? We do have some letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from michael carr and it goes just finished listening to your jack nicholson episode and i have to say it was one of your best the choice to eschew discussion of films such as the shining cuckoo's nest and many others more celebrated performances by old eyebrows in favor of a detailed dissection of anger management was inspired and it was one of those highbrow lowbrow balancing acts that keeps me coming back to this podcast week after week bravo well thank you very much i think that we had a lot of fun talking about jack nicholson and people clicked on it because they know who jack nicholson is that's all that matters (laughs) i was curious to learn more about Jack's time with Roger Corman, however, having previously been unaware that he was yet another alumni of the most venerated deity in the pantheon of ICC film worship. <laughs> I would love a Patreon episode that uh, delves further into the relationships between Corman and his more successful acolytes, in particular, Peter Fonda, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme. We've, I feel like we've talked about this a lot. Well, we've talked about Corman. You know, we could do just a whole podcast, like a whole separate podcast every week talking about some aspect of Roger Corman's career. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to because it would drive me insane. <laughs> yes. Because um, uh, that's too many bad movies. <laughs> uh, but he did work with a lot of very famous and later on successful directors who kind of cut their teeth making films for him. Particularly that 70s New Hollywood. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's many 90s um, Roger Corman directors that came out and went on to do massive things. I'm sure there is. Well, but what there are are a lot of technical people who started work with him, like makeup artists, effects artists, Mm -hmm. stunt people. I don't know. Like, I was thinking of, like, um, 90s pictures like... uh, what is it called? Brain Dead, the one that stars Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton, which was directed by Adam Simon, who went on to do like a whole bunch of like TV shows and stuff like that. I think you're forgetting a filmmaker by the name of Jim Wynorski. <laughs> That's right, who went on to great things. Or, and I'm not even making a joke about this, but the uh, director of Idle Hands, Rodman Flender. Oh yeah, he uh, started in the Corman um, factory. Uh, he made. A film called The Unborn, which was his take on Repulsion and the cinema of David Cronenberg, which is actually a lot of fun if you go in knowing those things. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the story that Ron Howard uh, often tells about making yeah. Grand Theft Auto, where he had to film a demolition derby and he had an audience of something like 17 people to work with. And he said, Roger, I need more extras. I can't do a dem- demolition derby audience with 17 people. And Corman says to him, Ron, you're going to have to do it with 17 people. But if you do a good job, you'll never have to work for me again. Well, after uh, Marty made a boxcar Bertha for him, he has a story that he showed it to John Cassavetes and Cassavetes went, never make a film like this ever again. Yeah, he said, like, it's good for what it is, but you spend a year of your life making shit. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, And then... Did you know that Scorsese went to Roger Corman when he was looking for money for Mean Streets? And, and Corman, yeah, said, can you make it like black main characters? Yeah, can you make it black exploitation? He, he, apparently what he said was, could you swing a little? <laughs> Which is really funny because the movie is like, it's such a it's such an Italian yeah. Catholic mob movie. You know, I bet it wouldn't have had the reputation that it had if he had made it for Roger Corman. Probably not. No. And that it's completely different because of that. Yeah. All right. The letter actually continues. While I'm making requests, would you ever consider doing a Joe Esterhouse episode. The man is a walking quote machine, and even though you've already covered some of the ground in the Verhoeven episode between Flashdance and an Alan Smithy film, there's a lot of talk about. So uh, Joe Esterhouse, if people don't know, was one of the most paid screenwriters at a certain point in time for spec scripts for films that were essentially never made. Yeah, he was a big, like, high concept screen. Did he write Jagged Edge? I think he did. I think he wrote, I don't know if he wrote Jagged Edge, but he wrote, he wrote Jaded? Jaded, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that was made by, um, 
William Friedkin. Friedkin. Yeah, yeah. But I, his main when ones... I went to L.A., every room has a theme that you and there's props from the thing because we were at the MGM Hotel, not L.A. Sorry, uh, Las Vegas, mm. and the room we were in was the Jade Room. Oh hell yeah, hell <laughs> so yeah. There was like a hat from the movie and other stuff like that. But yeah, his big one was obviously Basic Instinct. Yeah, and that which you know, along with Fatal Attraction, Showgirls. Because he wrote yeah. that as well, yeah. Yeah, and Showgirls was um, obviously a very hyped movie at the time, which he was paid, what, $3 million for something absurd. He, st- he sold scripts with titles like Male Pattern Baldness for, like, $2 million. He also apparently wrote a script about, um, like, a politician who has sex with a cow or something that was, like, a very popular underground spec script. Really? Yeah, uh, I learned this from one of his books. So let's talk about his books. Yeah, so I read, I think it was Hollywood Animal, which is his biography, which he said was inspired. <laughs> Inspired by Kurt Vonnegut and Slaughterhouse-Five, so it's told out of chronology, which has, like, a bunch of just, like, salacious anecdotes with, like, filmmakers that he's met. Like, Ivan Reitman is the most humorless man that he's ever um, met, or that when he met with Steven Spielberg, Spielberg was, like, playing with a train set, and that when uh, Joe said, like, oh, I want to be paid this, Steven's like, no, I'm going to pay you what I said. Don't you want to work with Steven Spielberg? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I, th- I found the book very charming when I read it, not knowing, you know, the kind of person that he is. And I'm sure that, I mean, I read it when I was 12 because mm-hmm. it was one of the books I got out of the library. I'm sure it does not hold up. And he's written many gross stuff since then. Yeah, that's one of those books that I, he, I think he wrote that book kind of after the bottom fell out on his career. A hundred percent. So he was like, fuck it, nothing left to lose. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'll, I'll write this, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, absurd fantasy memoir. <laughs> Where at one point he sleeps with Sharon Stone or yeah. something like that. Yeah, like, I don't know what to believe. But you read one of the ebooks that he wrote, I, or Amazon yeah. singles, if we're doing branding. Yeah, it was probably like a hundred pages or something. I read Heaven and Mel, <laughs> which was his account of writing a script for Mel Gibson about the Maccabees. And, you you know, it was a very salacious book and it's such a disingenuous. I had a great time reading it, but it's such a disingenuous book because he became a born again Christian, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also um, really considers himself a friend of the Jews. Yeah. <laughs> Always talking about Ooh. how much he loves the Jews and and what a great ally and hero of the Jewish community he is. And uh, he teamed up with Mel Gibson thinking that Mel Gibson really seriously wanted to atone for his anti-Semitism. And uh, it, things didn't work out too well. He accuses Mel Gibson of having buried his Maccabees script, like out of out of malice. And and I mean he frankly what, he wasn't really doing anything in the industry at the time. Well I like, mean probably what it was was so he quotes Mel Gibson as saying, I've never seen a worse first draft in all my years of working. And frankly, Mel Gibson was probably right. Yeah. It probably was a terrible draft. I just realized that I'm like jumping to the defense of Mel Gibson. Well, okay. It's two bad men. These assholes deserve each other because yeah. he does give you a lot of really salacious stuff about Mel Gibson. Does he? Ugly, horrible Ugh. stories. And, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend the book to anyone except that it was, I had a great time reading it. Uh, so Michael Carr ends his letter with PS, do an Ozu episode and quote, Schrader as much as possible. I We will inevitably do an Ozu episode. We will. As we grow old and we're like, I guess we've got to do Ozu now. I, I like Ozu. And yeah. I got to take the... Um, uh, what was it called? Donald Ritchie's book? No, no, no. It was Schrader's book that he also oh, wrote it transcendental about. Transcendental Trans- style. Yeah, which I tried to read recently and I went, ah, yeah, maybe not at this point in my life. Okay. <laughs> and so our next letter goes, Hi, Justin and Wilp. My name's Guy and I'm a ranger in the great expansive wastes of Australia. What does a ranger mean? To like someone who like fights roving gangs as they go or it's probably like a forest ranger yeah it's like yogi bear you know <laughs> wait yogi bear is not the ranger no but there's a ranger in it who, oh, okay, who yeah. tried to stop him from stealing picnic <laughs> baskets i've been listening to your podcast for a very long time now this made me remember the dan Aykroyd voice yogi bear in the movie <laughs> <laughs> and I can't get enough. You guys have taught me a lot about film and have helped me ascend to near cosmic brain status. Wow. I always look forward to that email notification that there's a new one. I travel a lot and spend a lot of time on my own, and you're both joined me from the Northern Territory deserts to the forests of Kangaroo Island. Well, I'm glad. Not literally, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it feels like, you know, we've traveled the world, ah, <laughs> even yes. though I've never left my apartment in Toronto. And I just wanted to say thanks for keeping me company, even though you don't know me parasocial relationships are good for something huh 
My question is, what are some tips? Did you, did you hear me whispering in your ear? <laughs> yeah. We're the, um, what is it, ASMR or whatever? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll do a, a special Patreon tier where we whisper talk about movies sure. and just read from, like, Paul Schrader's Transcendental Cinema. Yeah, or, like, we could be like Vincent Gallo, where for a certain amount of money, we will father your child. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, what are some tips or pointers you can give to young and upcoming filmmakers, i.e. you're studying film at uni, like I'm planning on doing, what should I be doing in my spare time what should i be focusing on should i be engaging with film festivals and attempt programming them or is it as simple as speaking to your peers and filtering out the superhero filmmakers for the galaxy brains Uh oh i hope you didn't hear my top 10 list this uh, episode sorry if this is a weak question or has been asked before thanks again for all the laughs and knowledge ranger guy oh man it's good that his name is ranger and he became a ranger okay so um Will, what are some tips for young filmmakers? Uh, I wouldn't know. You're, you're a filmmaker. What worked for you? Uh, I would just say just keep making movies with your friends, keep writing scripts, and keep watching movies. I said this before, but like, you know, if you know what you like and when you what you don't like when watching movies, you can bring that to your filmmaking as well. The thing is, like, filmmaking is hard. And you have to deal with other people unless you're an animator of some kind. So make friends that want to do it with you. Because <laughs> yeah. unless you're like a millionaire, like no one's going to want to do it with you. You're going to a university, you'll definitely find tons of people. And I would say, uh, if it's short projects, try to work with non-actors in the acting roles. And I'll tell you why. Number one, because they'll probably be very energized to be doing this. And number two, you'll get a performance that'll be different than people that are starting uni and want to be actors. <laughs> Which is yeah, a little bit scary. I would say uh, take the time to learn film grammar. Yes, the basics. Like um, <laughs> what crossing the line is, which is really the only thing you need to know yeah. about film. And it's something that you could watch film for decades and not even realize that you know it, but you do, and you'll screw it up when you start making movies. You must learn how to pick a lock and how <laughs> to steal film. You must learn how to milk a cow. Only then will you know how to make a film. Do you think uh, Herzog had a good laugh when he was like Scrooge McDucking like all the money that the people paid to be in his film school <laughs> uh, oh uh, there's a quote from John Waters where he says always put sex and violence in your first movie because that way someone will want to see it <laughs> yeah that's right I see like anyone can make a movie now and there's like indie filmmakers who have like 30 feature films on their IMDb <laughs> and I'm like not these have never been released and I don't think anybody would probably want to watch them either yeah uh, but yeah just keep doing stuff and even if you just do it for yourself, because there's a pressure to like put it on the internet and wait for a reaction and you're not going to get the reaction that you want. So just do it for you and your friends. Cause it, it was easier to make films when I just did it on mini DV. And then I would bring like a VHS tape and pop it in at my friend's house and we would all watch it. Mm -hmm. Then putting it on the internet and waiting for a reaction to it. Also don't spend tons of money on a short film. Just don't do it. Like it's a waste of time. If you're going to spend it, might as well just make it a feature, shoot it in 13 days you know, just like Edgar G. Ulmer would, you know, <laughs> prove them uh, wrong out there and don't waste all your money on a short film. And I'm not speaking from experience because I've never had money, so I've never been able to spend it. But I've seen people who have done it and you get very polished, great looking things that nobody would want to watch. Max out your credit cards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sell your comic book collection and you'll have a clerks on your hands. Oh, one more pointers. Uh, if you're making a short film, there's one thing that you need to remember. Nobody cares. Yes. It, that's the biggest <laughs> problem I have watching short films is that the filmmakers think that we're going to buy in instantly and that like viewers don't. Even though you're making a short film, give it a three act structure. Like just people don't care and don't assume that they will. All righty. So uh, that's it for letters this week. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And next week, emergency entry on our schedule, it's going to be the Hong Kong director, Ringo Lam. You mean the guy who inspired Reservoir Dogs? Yeah, with City on Fire. A movie I don't like very much. I just saw it for the first time this week. Really? Well, we'll talk about it a bit. Mm -hmm. um, Ringo Lam, one of the uh, iconic Hong Kong action directors of the 80s and 90s who died this week. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, there are some major blind spots for me in his filmography, so I'm interested in exploring it a bit. going to finally sit down and watch Prison on Fire? I've seen Prison on Fire when I was in high school, but I haven't seen School on Fire. Oh, that one's great. Yeah. Uh, so. Or Prison on Fire 2. I've seen that too. Oh, those, wow. So I've seen those too. But yeah, I have never seen those. Yeah, uh, but I, I just saw City on Fire. I'm going to watch School on Fire. Mm -hmm. Probably, I don't know what, Maximum Risk. 
Uh, yeah, maximum <laughs> risk. Ringo Lamb being the most prolific of big time. Uh, I mean, John Woo was more prolific. But as far as people that have worked with Van Damme, Ringo Lamb is on top because he made three movies. Including Replicant, which I have seen. I like Replicant. It's very serious for a clones of uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. It's a bit silly. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember very well. Uh, maybe I'll check it out this week. Also, Ringo Lamb, a York University graduate. He was? Yeah, yeah. He oh, studied film that. in Toronto. Uh, he made one of my favorite uh, Wuxia pictures, Burning Paradise, mm. which was produced by Troy Hark and is hilariously violent. It's like someone's forcing him to make like a uh, kind of kung fu wirework film. So he decided, I'm going to make it as gross and dark as I can, but still packet full of action. Mm-hmm. So if people want to check out his films, we didn't even mention probably the film that he's most famous for, which is Full Contact. Oh, yes. The yes. Uh, Chow and Fat film. Oh, yeah. Which... I've seen that too. So I guess I've seen some of his films. Yeah. But... but I would probably recommend if you guys want to check out his work, uh, Full Contact is like the famous one. And I'm trying to think of another one that doesn't star Chow Young Fat that people can uh, see. Uh, I don't know. Replicant or Maximum Risk yeah. is Hollywood films to get a different angle on him. Uh, but... Tower on Fire. No, no, no. It wasn't called Tower on Fire. <laughs> his last one. Yeah, it was it was bad. Don't yeah. watch that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin McClum. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd like to address two deaths from the last week on this episode. One, late-breaking, uh, Bob Einstein, better known to the world as Super Dave Osborne. A very big part of my childhood that I have almost forgotten everything about. He was a big part of your childhood in the sense that he was on TV a lot when Why you were was he on TV? It must have been like Canadian content. It was on YTV. I think yeah. it was Canadian content. Because, so Super Dave Osborne, who is it for international listeners who don't know who that is? So his real name is Bob Einstein, and he is the brother of Albert Brooks. And, and if you don't know Super Dave, you probably saw him on Arrested Development. Yeah, he played the interpreter to Martin Short's character. Uh-huh. And he also appears in that one scene where Albert Brooks goes into the shoe store in uh, in, in Modern Romance. Modern Romance. Very yeah. funny scene. But mostly he was known as the Super Dave Osborne character who was a stuntman. And what was the punchline to every one of the jokes, Will? The punchline would be that he would be horribly <laughs> mangled like a train would run him over or he would fall off the CN Tower and it would usually end with him like his his, squished. his body squished so it was like his head and his shoes right underneath his head. I don't understand that joke. why it was so like omnipresent in our childhood but it can only be because of that Canadian content thing. That show of his was a variety show where it would have like I remember Celine Dion was on it mm-hmm. it would have musical acts on it and then every episode would climax with his stunt for the episode which was just the same joke over and over 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 again yeah and like I guess I feel like it was probably a time filler as well because I have memories of it filling like when a show would end to like break Mm. up the time until the next one starts you can throw in a little Super Dave Osborne segment yeah so anyway rest in peace rest in power to a real one (laughs) also I I do like Bob Einstein though he's a funny man I'm Uh, trying to think of like what else he was in oh he was in Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah like that's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. And also, he was on some episodes of Norm Macdonald's podcast. Mm-hmm. I think he was like well known among like comedy types, mm-hmm. you know, as being a funny guy. Uh, and he also made a Super Dave movie called The Extreme Adventures of Super Dave. That's right. He also has a cameo in Ocean's Thirteen as Matt Damon's dad. Huh. Um, so also passed away this week was Robert Kerman, also known as R. Bola. He starred in Cannibal Holocaust, also Cannibal Ferox, also Eaten Alive. That's right, he was in at least three, maybe more, Italian cannibal movies. In Cannibal Holocaust, he famously says at the end, I wonder who the real cannibals are. <laughs> but in addition to that, under the name Arbola, he appeared in dozens of porn movies. Oh, he did? I didn't know that. Including... Debbie Does Dallas. Wow, what a filmography. He, and I don't even mean that, like, sarcastically. Uh, even though it a, sounded it like it. It is an amazing career. There's like, a, he's in fucking Cannibal Holocaust. Like, uh, one of the, like, most famous films of all time. Well, I mean, like, just, just from that, he could, you know, do very well on the convention circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Rialto Report episode that I listened to, he sounded rather sad about how his life had gone. And to, to that, I say... You don't need to be sad. You know what? He appeared in 2002 as the tugboat captain in Spider-Man. Right. And you know how that happened, right? 
it's got to be Bob Murawski that got him in there. Oh, it had to have been. It, yeah. it definitely wasn't Sam Raimi. So I have a feeling Bob Murawski was in the background kind of pushing it forward. Wait, what was that story that I heard this week about Bob Murawski that I uh, messaged you about? Oh, the day the clown cried. Mm-hmm. That's right. That for like the last few decades, Bob Murawski has been emailing people that are in charge of the copyright, seeing if you could get it and figure out how you could put it out. Well, maybe now that he has some new clout after the other side of the wind. Yeah. I mean, Bob Murawski, if we're giving an award for like cinema person of the year, he's definitely getting it, so. Still alive, fortunately. <laughs> yeah, still alive. Anyway, rest in peace, Arbola. Rest in peace, Super Dave Osborne. Rest in peace, Ringo Lamb. More on him later. Yeah, more on him later. <laughs> 